same page with us um, about that. So we'd love to hear from you. You can talk to us uh, up here at the office during the week. You can email us or call us up here, okay? All right, so we're still in our sort of Christmas season. And Christmas, like I said, it's 10 days away. We're going to be in 1 John today. We'll have it on the screen. There's scriptures. There's Bibles all over the place for you. Uh, but we'll be in 1 John. And uh, we'll continue, like I said, to look at this uh, very familiar story um, about Christmas and Christ. Um, there was a little riddle I ran across this week um, as we talk about Christmas this week. And the, the riddle was this. What has 10 towns, six actresses, two writers, and one plot line? Hallmark Christmas movie. That's right. Right? They are all the same. And one of the things that happens in every one of them, I think, although I haven't watched every one of them, that somebody magically falls in love. Right? In almost every single one of them, somebody magically falls in love. So love, we find that this idea of love is just a huge theme for us at Christmas time. There's this romanticism. My sister, who's three years older than me, actually got married the day after Christmas. The 26th is her anniversary. I think they regret it to this day, right? But at the time, it was so romantic, and everything was beautiful, and it was Christmas, da 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 and it sounded like a great idea. Everybody hated it, right? Except then, they thought it was amazing, right? Love and love is this theme that's, that's kind of around us at, at Christmas time. We can think of so many uh, uh, Christmas movies and things that kind of revolve around that theme of love. Uh, our songs and the music of Christmas has that theme in there also. Uh, Last Christmas, um, if you know that song, talks about that. All I want for Christmas is you. Santa, tell me. Blue Christmas. And you just go on and on and on. So many songs have this theme of love. Uh, that runs through them. And I think they're partially correct. I think there should be some kind of emphasis on love at Christmas time because Christmas is about love. That is correct. Um, Christmas really is about love. Um, we show it to our family, we show it to our friends. Sometimes we even show it to strangers. We may even find ourselves being nicer to people that we don't know, you know, at this time of the year. Um, we are showing love to just as many people um, as we can. So I think the question we would want to ask, or the thing that we would want to spend some time on in here is, what does Christmas show us about God's love, right? Not just love in general, but about love and about God's love specifically. So let's look in 1 John. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We'll have it on the screen. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loves is of Jesus and of God and knows God. The one who does not uh, love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested to us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I don't know if there's a legitimate English translation that can do away with that word propitiation. Okay, so we'll talk about that in a second. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to also love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. So Christmas is literally God shouting through a megaphone, I love you. That is the message of Christmas, I think. God is standing with this cosmic megaphone in the most incredibly 
creative, unforeseen way that anybody could ever possibly imagine. And God is shouting at us, I love you. Now, don't be confused and think that suddenly Christmas 2,000 years ago, God woke up that day and said, hey, I need to tell him I love him. I haven't done that before, right? I've been in the Old Testament. I've been kind of judgy. I'm going to kind of move away from that. And now I'm suddenly going to announce to him that I love him. Okay? Don't ever get confused because the God of the New Testament is the God of the Old Testament. And love is all over the Old Testament. It is all over the Old Testament. I'll give you one example, okay? Actually, we'll run through a couple, but the biggest one I can give you is probably this. There's a word in the Old Testament, and it doesn't work very well in English. If I use the word loving kindness with you, how, who used that word the last year, right? Loving kindness. It's a word we don't even use, okay, in the English. And it's because in the, in the Hebrew, it's this word hesed, and it means loving kindness, because we don't know what else to say. We made up a word um, to kind of help us understand what this word means. It is translated, appears more than 250 times, and we have tried to translate it in over 150 different ways. We can't quite put our finger on exactly what this word has said means, okay? So we say loving kindness. We use the word love. We'll use the word mercy. We'll use the word grace. And yet kindness is also part of it. We'll, but we can't quite put our finger on exactly what this idea means. But we know that it encompasses a lot. It is the loving kindness of God. It is his unfailing grace, his unfailing mercy and care for us, his committed love to us. Many times it stands in the place of a covenant love, that God has a covenant arrangement with us, a covenant love to us that he cannot break. So sometimes it stands in the place of this committed love that is just fundamental and, and it radically changes who we are. Hesed in the Old Testament is rarely used just to tell us God is loving or God is kind or God is gracious. It tells us that and then it says, here's the effect that should have on you. God is lovingly kind to you. God is merciful to you. God is gracious to you. And here's what that should do in your life. So it's this love from God that radically changes who we are. Michael Card, some of you have been around long enough, you know who that is, a musician from the 70s and the 80s. He's a, a biblical scholar, and he's written over 20 books. And he wrote a book called The Inexpressible Hesed and the Mystery of God's Loving Kindness. And he said this, he said, we must become Hasids, and he made that word up, not just receivers of God's love, but givers of God's love. Receivers of Hesed and givers of Hasid. So he's like, we have to become Hasids, not simply those who go around doing good works, but men and women who are completely dependent on the loving kindness of God, the Hesed of God, conquered by his kindness, reborn to a life of unconditional love. That's Old Testament. I haven't even gotten to the New Testament yet. God loves us. God has always loved his people. Always but Christmas, if you were at all confused, and I think mostly it's because, and I'm not being in any way insensitive here, but I think it's because the Jewish people messed it up so badly, right? I think at some point God's like, I got to clear up confusion here. I'm going to do this to make it clear that I love people. And at Christmas, that is his way of just shouting it at us. So what does this passage tell us about God's love at Christmas time. Like specifically, what does it tell us? Because it is nice to know that God loves us, and that should be radically changing our lives, okay? But let's talk a little bit specifically. What's the big deal about that? What does this tell us about God's love at Christmas time? First of all, God loves me. God loves me. 
Some of us are really comfortable with the idea God loves us. We love the idea that God loves mankind. We love the idea that God loves his people. We kind of choke on the words, God loves me. Have you thanked God this week just once? God, thank you for loving me. We, we have a hard time with this concept that God loves me specifically. All of the specific people in these verses that we're talking about and all throughout Scripture tell us that God loves individual people, that he loves people, me, individuals, not just the world, not just sinners, not just the church and the elect. I don't want you to, to uh, relativize this idea of God's love. I want you to personalize it. God loves me. This all gets very personal, very intimate, very quickly. And you're like, okay, well, Sanders, it's a really big deal. Why are you hammering on this? Because it's such a big deal to God. God wants you to know that he loves you. God wants you to be able to look in the mirror with all your flaws and all your ugliness and all your sin and all your shortcomings and go, God loves me. And be convinced of it, that God loves you. Okay, so I want to be careful about how we apply this, but I, I think it's broad enough that we can do it. God wrote you the book of Song of Solomon. Just read it. It is uncomfortable to read, okay, because it's a little explicit. And when you start putting yourself in the position of maybe this lover and this person who's getting married to her bride or to her groom, man, it changes the way you read the book. God's crazy in love with you. He loves you, and he said it repeatedly. So hesed is this big idea of God's loving kindness, but he loves you specifically. Song of Solomon tells us that. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Put your name in every one of these verses. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love to Joe. Does that change the way that you read this? God loves you. God loves me. Psalm 146, he upholds the cause of the oppressed and he gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves me. Does that help you? Isaiah 54, 10, because it's awesome that he cares for the oppressed and the, right, and the, you know, the, the widow and all these people, but it's great that he loves me because I am those people. Isaiah 54, 10, though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Put your name in there. The Lord loves me who has compassion on Joe. His love for me will not be shaken or moved. I thought I'd get an amen out of that one. That's all right. Deuteronomy 33.3. Surely it is you, God, who loves me. All the holy ones are in your hand. At your feet they all bow down, and from you we receive instruction. God loves me. Galatians 2.20. You don't have to personalize it. Paul did it for you. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. God loves me. Can you say that to yourself and be absolutely convinced of it? Christmas is God's megaphone to you saying, I love you. Put your name in that blank. Amen, right? That is a huge deal. I am the object of the love of my creator and sustainer and judge and king. He loves me. 
right? That's the first thing we find out here about God's love is that it is personal and God loves me. The second thing we find out about God's love is that it's forever. God loves us forever. Verse 13, verse 17, and this is the same John that wrote John 3, 16. Okay? Listen, the first, most basic, clearest understanding of eternal life is forever. Right? I mean, we could kind of break down the Greek if you want to and all that kind of stuff, but I just think the basic understanding of it is, is that it's life without ceasing, life without end. Right? So God talks to us about this kind of eternal relationship that he has with these people that he loves. God loves us so much that he ensures that we cannot fall out of his love. I didn't say you're not going to feel like sometimes God doesn't love you, and I'm not saying you're not going to feel like sometimes you don't love God. I'm saying God loves you so much he won't let you fall out of his love. We may not feel loving. We may not be acting very loving. We may not feel like we are loved, but we cannot fall outside of the love of Jesus once we come into him by faith. Brett Creter, another pastor, said this, our relationship with God isn't jeopardized by our humanity. It's rather guaranteed by his divinity. My relationship with God is not jeopardized by the fact that I'm a fallen human with flaws. It is guaranteed by the divinity of Christ and he cannot fail. He loves me with an everlasting love, an eternal love. God loves me, and he loves me forever. Even though I'm an idiot, and I sin, and I rebel against him, and I love this world, he loves me forever. Next thing, God loves me. God loves me forever. God loves me clearly. He loves me assuredly. Some of us are wondering right now, and you're wrestling with this. Your heart is not connecting to this, and you are wrestling with, does God love me? Because I don't feel very lovable. I don't feel very loving toward him. I don't sense a lot of love of God in my life right now. Does God really, you're, you're wondering if God loves, loves you. Or maybe you've wondered that before. Man, I have done too much. I have gone too far. Too much has happened to me. Are you unclear about how much God loves you? This is a wrestle I think we all struggle with at some point or another. I want to ask you a question in response to your question. Can God really love me? Does God really love me? I want to ask you a question in response. What else do you need for God to do to prove to you that he loves you? And I'm not being totally facetious here. I'm asking a question. Like, what would it take for you to be absolutely, completely, eternally assured that God loves you? What would it take? What would God have to do to pass your test of what it means for him to love you? Every material blessing, restored health, reviving a lost one. Because here's what he's done. He sent his son and we didn't love him. He lived perfectly and we didn't love him. He loved all people And he died for our sins to take away our sinfulness, to make the way open to God. He came back from the dead and he sent his spirit to live in us. And we didn't love him. If the amount of love, this isn't always true, if love can be somehow implied by the gift that's given, 
God's love is boundless and immeasurable. If the, if the value of a gift tells me something about what you feel about me, now that could be sentimental, it can be monetary, I understand that. There's lots of reasons why gift mean, gifts mean things. But if that gift, if, the, if the, the size of it in some way reflects what you feel about me, then God's love for me, based on his gift to me, is immeasurable, and it's boundless. Does that pass your test? Are you still, does God really love me? Does God really care? It passes God's test of showing us his love. He could have spared us pain. Do you realize that? He could have. He could have given us unicorns and rainbows. He could revive all of our lost ones, and he could take us back to a happier time and place in our lives. He could. But God, somewhere in eternity past, in his own counsel within the Trinity, before the world was created, had some kind of a conversation. And I don't know how this works in the Trinity, but some kind of conversation was like, how can I best show these people my love? What's the best possible way for me to display my love, to prove my love to them? I know, I got it. I will give them my son as a little baby to a poor, unmarried couple in a dirty animal stall, I'll make sure that he dies on a disgraceful and dehumanizing cross. He'll be rejected. He'll be despised by everyone. I'll bring him back from the dead, and I'll send them my spirit so that I'll never be away from them. I will live in them and with them forever. Then, because my sin has removed them from her sins, I'll bring them to live with me in heaven. That'll do it. That'll prove to them that I love them. And then he hears our prayers, right? He's like, what? You want meatless meat? What? You know what I'm saying? You want how much money? If I gave you that much money, that would prove to you that I love you. You want who to fall in love with you? And he just looks at it and says, dear ones, that is not love. That would not be the most loving thing I could do for you. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his love in this, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Chapter 4, verse 10 of this passage. What is love? Not that we loved God first, that he loved us first. And we are convinced that Jesus is the Savior of the world, is what John says. God says, man, Christmas will lead them directly to the cross and they'll know that I love them. God loves us clearly. There's no doubt that God loves us. He loves me. He loves me forever. He loves me in a way that really can't be doubted. And here's the best one of all. Guys, he loves sinners. He loves sinners. We love sin. We talked about that last week. We love sin. We seek sin. We pursue th- sin. You're like, Pastor Joe, that's really hard. It's Christmas. Be nice. <laughs> Romans chapter 3 says this, that your throat is an open grave and your feet rush to death. Is that hard enough for you? First three chapters of, of Romans are basically, we are awful. <laughs> we are terrible. And we do not deserve the love of God. The good news of Christmas is God with a megaphone sends his son and says, I love you, sinners. I love you. 
You love sin. I love you. The most undeserving of his creatures in some ways, in most ways. He loves us. God loves us so much he sent his son for us. What an amazing announcement. John echoes here from, I think, his gospel that God loves us. Now, the other side of that Christmas announcement that God loves us is this, and I think it's literally the other side of it. You can't ignore it. Is that God loves us, but he loves us so much he's not going to let us stay in our sin. Verse 10 talks about that, that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. And even our English, our English Bibles can't do away with that word, okay? It is such an important word. Verse 10, he loves us so much that he's not going to let us stay in our sin. The big idea behind propitiation, there's books written on this one word. Let me tell you the big idea. The big idea is God looks at you and says, you are guilty, you're a sinner. You can't do anything about it. I'm going to do something about it. I will cover it and remove it and make it possible for you to be with me forever. That's propitiation in a nutshell. God loves sinners. He loves us so much that he won't let us stay in our sin. J.I. Packer says that propitiation is the very heart of the Christian gospel. No version of the gospel goes, that goes any deeper than that which re- declares man's root problem before God has to be sin, which brings God's wrath, and God's basic provision for man to be the propitiation of Jesus, without which we get wrath instead of peace. That is the great message of Christmas. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. Why? Because God's wrath has been removed in the person of Jesus Christ. Because God loves sinners. So much so that he removes your sin and makes it possible for you to be with him forever. So the bad news is also the best news possible. We're not only sinners, we can't get away from our sin, we can't solve our sin. Christmas tells us that. Christmas assures us that. Let's just say for the 8,000, 10,000, 12,000 years of human history prior to the cross, if it was possible for somebody to work their way to God, which it wasn't, Christmas is the announcement that nobody can get to God. All of your sin is that bad. Nobody can get here. It's so bad, I have to die for you to take it away from you. Now that's good news and bad news because that means all of my effort isn't worth anything. It is filthy rags. It's not worth anything. It doesn't get me one ounce closer to God. All my works, there's no way for me to climb a ladder and get to him. That's called the Tower of Babel. Jesus already dealt with that. Old Testament. I can't work my way there, climb my way to him. That's good news and bad news. Christmas tells us this. We can't tweak ourselves or reform ourselves or do some annual spiritual retreat and change ourselves to be the best Sunday religious version of ourselves and somehow work our way to God. Our out-of-control anger is inside of us. Our lust is inside of us. Our desire for revenge is inside of us. Our self-loathing and our eternal comparison to other people is inside of us. Our belief that we can fix ourselves without God is inside of us. God loves sinners. He loves me. He loves you. He loves sinners. He knows all of that about us, and he loves us. And he made a way for us to be with him. Christmas is most satisfying, and it's best celebrated when I embrace the bad news of who I am along with the good news of what Jesus came to do for me. God loves me, 
and he loves me forever, and he loves me in a way I can't doubt, and he loves me even though I'm a sinner, amen? Christmas tells us all of that. Now, this kind of love, when God loves us with this kind of love, it really does change everything. Christmas changes everything. I want you to think quickly about the shepherds, okay? Those shepherds that came that first night that Christ was born. Everybody had to be shocked that they were the first witnesses, right? If a king was born in our world today, we would not send, right, an invitation to the vet clinic, right? We would not send an invitation to a rancher on the king's ranch out in West Texas, The first people that got the announcement that Jesus was born were shepherds. And I want you to just quickly think about them. Everyone would have been shocked that they were on the baby announcement list. Everybody would have been shocked that they were the first witnesses called to this birth of this king. Shepherds had to work on the Sabbath. They were ceremonially unclean for many, many reasons. Other Jewish people would have hated them. They couldn't get to religious festivals because they worked all the time. And yet they're called to be the first witnesses to this teenager giving birth to the king. They're the first people who were called for God's love to be born in this little baby. They witnessed God in human form. They were outcasts, they were dirty, they were uneducated, and they were changed into the first witnesses of God's love. And they're also the first people who see Jesus and walk out and tell other people about him. They not only become the first people to see Christ, they become his first witnesses who go tell other people about Christ. A feed trough is changed into a throne. And later in Jesus' life, the cross will be changed from a symbol of abuse and power and torture and humiliation and pain. It's changed into the instrument that God uses to forgive us forever of our sins. Christmas changes everything. And we're changed because of Christmas. A borrowed grave is changed into the place where we exchange death for life. Love changes everything. Failures, sinners, haters, lovers of this world, all of us have been changed through Jesus into God's friends, the temple of the Holy Spirit, co-heirs of life with Jesus Christ. We've been changed because of Christmas. Every person who places their faith in this baby who grows into this man who dies and then comes back from the dead for you because he loves you changes everything. Christmas really does change all of that. Look at verse 7 again. Beloved, let us love one another. See, remember, Hesed isn't just I receive God's love. Hesed changes me. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to also love one another. Verse 14. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. What's the outcome, uh, outcome of this kind of love? What's the effect of this kind of love on us? What should we be doing because we've been loved like us, like this, by God? We have to love others. Always, 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 always love others. Love others. The, John says it this way. 
And he doesn't just say it this way in chapter 4. He says it this way throughout his whole book. So I'm going to throw it out the way that John does. I'm just going to summarize it and see if it makes us really uncomfortable, okay? Because John says this. The person who says they love God, who doesn't love his church, who doesn't love other human beings, who doesn't give God's love and the gospel to other people, John says we should probably question their relationship with God. Now you have to get personal again. Do I love others? Do I give God's love to other people? Do I consistently treat others with the love that God treated me with? Because if I don't, I should probably question my relationship with God. That's John, John chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. <laughs> That's the whole book. John says it over and over and over again. What is the effect of the love that God has given me? That I should love other people. Always, always, always. Do you selfishly hoard God's love? God loves me. God loves me. I love God. Right? Christmas is all about God's love for me. Do you hoard it? Or do you work to make his invisible love visible by being a person of love who extends love to someone who needs love? Don't we have people in our lives and they're just starving for love? Literally dying for a lack of love? Not only a human love, but man, a connection with their creator love. They're dying for it, and you have it. It's overflowing in your heart, in your life. It can't ever be exhausted, and yet we keep it to ourselves all the time because we get stuck on they're mean, or they're loud, or they're rude, or they're in a bad mood all the time, or whatever it is, and we just stop and go, wait a minute, what if they just need God's love? What if they need this, cre this, this connection with their creator God who loves them? Because they're cut off from him, they're just sour people. If we're not consistently changed by God's love to go give his love to other people, we really should, according to John, check on our relationship with God. Why is Christmas so wonderful? And we talked about it because we're loved with just this incomprehensible love. Sometimes we get confused about this, and I want to talk about two ways that you can get confused, and we'll be wrapping it up. Two things that we can be confused about God's love. First of all, we can think, dang, I am pretty awesome because God loves me. Maybe we would rip it around and say, because I'm awesome, God loves me. I am special, and God got a good deal when he drafted me onto his team. Right? Number one pick in the fantasy league, hey, God, I'm here, you know? Second thing we could confuse is that God loves for me comes and goes as life gets good or hard. When things are bad, God doesn't love me. When things are good, God must love me now. I think there are two common misconceptions, confusions we can have about God's love. I think we've screwed up this whole idea about how Christmas somehow or another has become an affirmation of my value. Somehow or another, it's like, see how important I am. See how worthy I am. Look what God did to save me. I've got to be pretty special. God loves me, and I feel so much better. I feel so much better about who I am now. God is affirming everything about me. No, the wonder of Christmas is that we are not worth loving. Christmas is wonderful not because God got to deal with me, because he picked me up off the trash heap and he loves me like his child. It's not because I'm worth loving, it's because I'm not worth loving. We take the gifts of God and we worship them. We ignore his image, and this is just Romans 1, 2, and 3. Romans 1, 2, and 3 tells us this. We are not worthy of God's love. We're not that big of a deal. We have taken the gifts of God and we worship them. 
We ignored his image in us. We pervert every expression of humanity, including our sexuality. We pervert our relationship with food. We, per we pervert our, our pursuit of bodily perfection. Our personal, our corporate history as creatures is one of not loving God and not responding to his love, at least not the way that God's defined it for us. The only way for us to really reconnect with the wonder of Christmas is to some ways be almost humiliated by God's love and overwhelmed by God's love for us. How do we know if we really understand that we're loved by God? Like we really, really get it. There's an old movie called The Fisher King. Has anybody ever seen that movie? Robin Williams movie called The Fisher King. It's weird. Weird people watch it. Two weird people with me, okay? <laughs> Three of us weirdos in here. Robin Williams is in it, and he's a very disturbed guy in this movie, and he ends up going with this, going on a date. He gets uh, set up on a date to go out with a date, and Amanda Plummer, who is weird in real life, and then she plays this awkward person in this movie. She's klutzy. She doesn't have any friends, and she gets hooked up on this date with Robin Williams, and they go out, and she is odd. The whole movie, she's just weird, kind of like Adrian and Rocky. Remember how weird she was in the first Rocky movie? Um, she goes on a date with Robin Williams. They go back, and he asks, he wants to talk to her more. Like, he literally just wants to get to know her more. Can I come in? Can we have coffee? Can we get to know each other more? This is her response. She says, no, 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 no. If you got to know me, you wouldn't like me. I am tired of rejection. It was nice to go out with you, but everyone who gets to know me doesn't like me, so thanks. And, and Robin Williams' character is kind of shocked by her answer. And he looks at her, and you'd have to see it in the film, and it's such a tender moment. And he says to her, I do know you. I know that you think you're awkward. I know that you think you're clumsy. I know that you kind of are clumsy. But I want you to know that I know who you are, and I love you. And I will never leave you. He says this to her. And I will never forsake you. And her character is astounded, overwhelmed, flabbergasted, undone. She, the look in her eyes when he says that to her, and she, she says it right up, she goes, are you real? Not are you for real. Are you real? Can anybody really love me like that? Can a real other person really love me like that? Are you real? At Christmas time, all of us should be saying, what? God loves me? Nobody loves me like that. And if God, you really, if you knew me, you wouldn't love me like that. God loves me? We should be overwhelmed that God loves me like that. And maybe it's like, God, maybe you meant to love my mom because she's awesome, you know, or Billy Graham or Mother Teresa or Kanye. Maybe Kanye, you can love Kanye like that now, <laughs> you know? I get how you would love all these people, but God, man, no way you love me like that. And then we should worship him at Christmas like we never have before because God loves me. Second thing, God loves, God's love for me comes and goes based on my circumstances in life. You can be secure in God's love for you. 
dark circumstances do not mean that God doesn't love you. Dark circumstances do not mean that God doesn't love you. Whatever he leads us into, whatever he leads us into and then through, listen, it emanates from his love for us. Can you wrap your mind around that? Is your theology big enough to absorb that statement? Whatever God leads you into and leads you through emanates from his heart of love for you. If we have a deficient, an immature view of God's love or a works-based view of our relationship with God, that we would believe that God's love comes and goes when difficulties in our lives. Verse 9 and verse 14. God loves me all the time. And it can be hard for us to kind of wrap our minds around that and hold on to that when life is hard. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, I've got it when life comes hard on me, I got to say this. Well, my father must have a purpose here because he loves me. And besides that, he doesn't owe me a good life. Have we wrapped our theology around that yet? God loves me, and he's got a purpose for me. And besides that, God does not owe me a good life. He owes me a far, far worse life than I've got. When I come at that, I can handle anything, uh, Keller says. And when good things come to me, I say, wow, what a miracle. <laughs> and the very fact that I get up in the morning and I say, I am a Christian, who would have thought that? Every day you get up and you have a relationship with Jesus. When you're lying on your deathbed and you're going to take your last breath, you look at yourself and you go, who'd have thought that? God's going to usher me into the next life with him. Who would have thought that? Every day you wake up and when good things happen, you go, wow, what a blessing, what a miracle. God loves me. When bad things happen, God loves me. There must be a plan. And he'll never let me go because he loves me. You got to be utterly convinced of this in our hearts and our lives. Don't slip back into moralism. Don't slip back into thinking, I must be doing something bad. I have to earn God's love. Don't slip back into thinking, I've done something bad. God's punishing me. He's not happy with me. He hates me right now. I got to be a good child. So he'll pat me on the head and tell me, good boy, good girl. Don't slip into moralism. Don't think, well, I guess it means that really being a Christian is just about doing things. This is Christianity. Can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? That's Christianity. Should I ever doubt his love for me? I have to fall back on the amazing love of God for me. So we have talked about over the last three weeks the defeat of Satan at Christmas time. We've talked about light in the darkness last week, how God's light shines on us and in us. And just like those two truths, this truth of eternal love is contingent on your response to it. If you were sitting in here this morning and you're thinking, because I was born a human being, God loves me like this, you're wrong. God has a general love for people. He has a specific love for his people. His people are those who come to him by faith in Jesus Christ. This eternal love of God becomes yours 
as you receive it, as you walk into it, as you step out like we did earlier and say, God, I am lost in my sin, and the only way I can be right with you is through Jesus Christ. And when you step out into that like that, you receive the eternal love of God forever through Jesus Christ. So here are the questions for you. What have you done with the work of Jesus on the cross? Verse 14, we are convinced, we're convinced, and we testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. What have you done with Jesus Christ? You want the love of God in your life forever? You want the light of God to shine in your heart? You want to know Satan's been defeated in your life? If you want all of that, it comes down to what have you done with Jesus Christ? Not the cute, sweet baby little Jesus, but the bloody Jesus, the broken Jesus, the crucified Jesus. What have you done with him? And you're like, why would somebody do that to him? Why would somebody take this little baby that we have at Christmas and he grows up and he lives a perfect life and he loves people perfectly and he does miracles? Why would people abuse him like that and kill him like that? It's why he came. This is why Christmas matters. It's the whole reason why he came, to love you and for you to accept his love through Jesus Christ, to hear him say to you, I love you, but you are desperate and you are far away from my love because of your sin. Stop working. Stop trying to be good. Stop trying to climb up to me. Receive my love. Receive my forgiveness of your sins. Trust that I have done the work to bring you to my love in Jesus Christ, and I will change you to be like me, and you will know my love forever through Jesus. You have to start there. And then secondly, for those of us who are Christians, we really are, but man, we struggle with just sensing the love of God on a regular basis. Maybe my challenge to you would be, our question for you would be this, how close are you to Jesus every day? Are you reminding yourself of the gospel? Are you reminding yourself of his promises and his character? Some of you are like, I am all alone. Whatever life has brought you, whatever circumstance uh, life has put you in right now, you're like, man, I am all alone. Are you preaching the gospel to yourself? I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. That is a promise from Jesus Christ to you. You are not alone. How close are you to God, to Jesus, every day? Man, I am a terrible Christian. I don't seem to ever make any progress. I feel like I was saved when I was 12 or 6 years old or 20 years old, and I just don't move. Like, I don't progress. I don't go anywhere. What do I have to do? First Peter says this. God says, I have given you everything you need for holiness. I've given you everything you need to be like Christ. Already, you already have it. Are you telling yourself that? Are you believing that? That God has already given me what I need to grow up and to mature in Him? I feel like I have fallen away. I feel like God has abandoned me and I don't have a relationship with Him anymore. I have fallen out of salvation. God says, I have put my Holy Spirit in you. I don't know another word. As an irrevocable seal, as a promise that I will finish what I have started in you. Do you believe that? Because that's what God says over and over and over again in the New Testament. Man, it is too dark. Where I am, it's too dark. My life is too dark. 
it's too hard, too much sin, too many cruddy circumstances. There's no way God's light can shine into where I am right now. Psalm 139, even when you run to the darkness, I'm there. And your darkness is like light to me. Do you believe that? That there's no darkness that's too dark for the light of God? Because that's what he says. There is no way God loves me. How do we know? What does John say? How do you know God loves you? He died for you. He died for you. Christmas is God's megaphone announcement. He loves you. He loves me. Don't ever doubt it. He's loved us in a way that can't be shaken or left or lost. He loves us. Amen? That's Christmas love. Let's close our eyes. God, thank you for this day, for this reminder that you love us like this. It is a crazy love. It's a love we shouldn't expect. It's a love we shouldn't neglect. Father, forgive us for when we are not loving toward other people. Forgive us when we don't act like, we don't behave as if you have loved us, Lord. Let us give our love to other people. Christmas is coming. Christmas Eve is coming. God, there are people who need to hear about you. One, we put our one's names on these wreaths. We're praying. We're going to invite them. We have these mugs. We have invitation cards. We have so many ways to invite people. God, I pray we just share the love of Jesus. Let us give it away because you loved us. Convict us of your love. God, if there's someone in here and they're not a Christian, they don't have this kind of assured love with you, God, I pray you save them right now that the Holy Spirit of God would come in. Convict them of their sin like at Christmas. You tell us we're sinners. We need Savior. And then, God, you'd save them and they would call out to you in faith. Do this. Change our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.